Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, mother of rats. Breaker of chains. <laughs> Spinner of wheels. Yeah, you I met them. You met Bill and Ted, didn't you? Yeah, me too. Well, cute. So we were looking for names for rats. Mm. And so I went on a little resource to see, oh, what are good names for rats? And two of my favourites, which we didn't choose because we wanted a duo, but Rat Damon uh, and Rat uh, Damon. Matthew McConaughey. Uh, it's like when I tried to persuade my friend to call his dog Avon Barksdale. It's a good name. Have it. <laughs> Why not? Uh, he just said it was the Avon bit he didn't like. That's totally and D'Angelo's a stupid thing to shout in a park. D'Angelo, No, that's back. great. I like that. I would totally call a dog Avon Barksdale, but as it goes, if I ever have one, I'm going to call it Road Dog. Right. Nice, nice. Would that make you the dweeb? If sure. the cap fits. Liz Carr, <laughs> all her cats are called after a friend of hers, but with a mm. pun in the name. Amazing. Like um, one of her cats is called Cat Fraser, after <laughs> Matt Fraser, <laughs> and another one's called Muley, something after her friend Julie. Incredible scenes. Mm. Yeah. I'm only sad that uh, Hannah Dunleavy doesn't have a cat pun. I bet my mum could think of one. Yeah, she probably could. We're all about the cat puns. Hannah Dunleavy, anyway. that cup of tea alone, Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> I am Hannah Dunleavy, and I'm starting to worry that I'm addicted to houseplants. Are you um, sort of chopping them up and snorting them? Uh, yeah, well, I've got 37, and the other day I decided to do my plants, which meant water them and then like pull off some dead leaves, you know, look after them. And it was most of the day went on that. It's too many. Might Although two well of them, it. two of them might not belong for the world. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. Oh no! Yeah, I read a thing that plant lady is the new cat lady. Is it? Yeah, you're both. You're doubling down. Wowzers! Do you know? I just told Jen that between the old steep tube station and here, I passed five people with my coat on. It's the most fashionable I've ever been. Amazing. A lot of pimps slash Teddy Ruxpins out there. And the relevance of that to the listeners is that the cats love Hannah's coat because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it's just really out of context. Yeah. Or the fact that She's I am just showing off. plant lady popular and coat popular. Anyway, Jane, say something to save me from this. <laughs> um, yeah, all right. I'm Jen Offord. And you know, back at our gig in September, yeah. I said I wasn't pregnant. Mm-hmm. Turns out I was. <laughs> wow. What? I am. <laughs> what are you going to tell us? Seriously, this is, we're not even at the Bush Telegraph and yet there's news. <laughs> I know. Yeah. As I said at the time, it's not Boris Johnson's baby. And in case you were wondering, because I'm sure you were, it's not Michael B. Jordan's either. I imagine one of those is more disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I'm not going to say who... But I'll let the listeners, yeah. She really wanted a Boris baby. Yeah, one of them was definitely more statistically like <laughs> Later on, we chat to actor, writer and musician Katie Arnstein about Sticky Door, the final play in a It's a Girl trilogy. I talked to Susanna Cahalan about her new book, The Great Pretender, which looks at how society understands madness, in inverted commas. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I talked to personal trainer Tally Rye about her book, Train Happy, and giving hashtag Fitzbo the middle finger. And we've another per lava. Oh, Jesus Christ. For you. <laughs> wow, uh, so I'm sorry, this is the final episode of the Sunday Shoe Podcast. <laughs> we watch Dante's Peak in Dunleavy Dust Disaster. But first, flag fires, bin fires, and water cooler chat. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the sunlit uplands of our first post-Brexit Bush Telegraph. Can't you just feel the new freedom? Mm, No. Oh, hang on. No. No, well, maybe it comes later. Maybe. So, who had 20 minutes before we leave in the office sweepstake on when the BBC might start asking follow-up questions to vote leavers? You, I think. Yeah. 
Apparently so. I don't think it was. I think I had never. Because the good news is, for that person, you've won two tickets to Anne Widdicombe's Next Bowel Movement. <laughs> you are welcome. I feel oh, so wow. sad. <laughs> As the UK finally departed the EU, intrepid BBC reporters made their way to union-jacked pubs and champ-filled corners to finally say, but what exactly is this freedom of which you speak? Only to be faced with blank faces, mumbled replies and a look that said, why didn't you ask those other fuckers on the 3,762 Fox Pops you've done since 2016? BBC, please, you've sat in a burning house for nearly four years. It's a bit late to try and piss the fire out now and call it journalistic impartiality. Yep. As Europe marked our departure by lighting up Brussels squares in the colours of the Union Jack and singing Old Lang Syne in Parliament, we responded with equal dignity by hosting what Nigel Farage called the greatest moment in our nation's modern history. Translation, men with their tops off, burning EU flags in Parliament Square while failing to remember the words to Land of Hope and Glory and somewhat masturbatory shit entitled 17 Million Fuck Offs which did somewhat jar with Julia Hartley Brewer's stated plan to reunite the country with a big group hug. It'd be like if you were doing a hug and it was between two people instead of these two divided parties in the UK. It's like one of you would be like fully dressed, quite smart, had made an effort, and the other one would just be sweaty. Sweaty like you've never seen before and a little bit on fire. Also, I can't imagine Julia Hartley Brewer hugging like anyone. I bet she hugs like Theresa May dances. <laughs> So that's what we are now as a country. All of which proves the point that when people in Norfolk call it the country, I think they're really <laughs> onto something. Yep. Oh, oh, dear. Oh, God. I saw a tweet this morning. I can't remember who it was by, but someone saying like, uh, you fucks, you're well out of order. If you ask someone why, you know, like in a Vox Pop, why they voted leave and they can't tell you, maybe they're just a bit nervous about being Vox Pop. Don't be Vox Pop <laughs> Like, literally walk away. You don't have to talk to the BBC. <laughs> it's like, don't call them stupid, because they don't know why. They just can't recall at that moment. I did see some people claiming today um, on Twitter that if most Remainers were asked why they wanted to stay in the EU, that they wouldn't have a good answer. And I was like, freedom of movement, there you go. That's, like, a good answer. Workers' uh, rights, children's rights, immigrants' rights, freedom of movement. I've got loads. Yeah. There are, like, actually, like... Loads and loads and loads of reasons to stay. But also just, I didn't have a problem with how things were and yeah. I think it might be a lot worse <laughs> if we leave. But know? also, it's like I say, the freedom of movement is really clear. It's been right that out there. You know, that's what we're going to lose. That's anyway, what we've lost, That's Hannah. what we've lost. Fuck. But perhaps those sunlit uplands are over in America, Hannah. Hey. Oh, oh, no. No, it's still raining hot liquid shit into the mouths of people wanting a better life. And by people here, I am specifically talking about domestic violence and sexual assault victims, the vast majority of whom are, of course... Women? Oh, that doesn't seem likely, Jen. No. <laughs> but, unlikely as it is, it is, it is women. But who gives a flying fuck about women? Well, certainly not the Trump administration, which has, quiet as a mouse in slippers, changed the definition of both domestic violence and sexual assault, a change that could have significant repercussions for millions of victims of sex-based violence. The Trump Justice Department's definition of domestic violence now only takes into account physical harm that constitutes a felony or misdemeanor, meaning other forms of domestic violence, such as psychological abuse, coercive control and manipulation, are no longer covered. As well as that, the Office on Violence Against Women, part of the Department of Justice, has amended its definition of sexual assault to also solely focus on criminal justice aspects. 
Luckily, we all know it's easy peasy, lemon squeezy to bring such charges because women feel comfortable coming forward mm-hmm. thanks to all aspects of the law and courts wanting to believe them and not being deeply sexist to the core. Isn't that right, Justice Brett Kavanaugh? Oh, wait, nope again. It's a move that rolls the US back a good few decades with the focus on physical harm completely undermining what so much of domestic violence is about. Control. All of this was ninjured back in April 2019, but has only just surfaced as news. Natalie Nanassi, director of the Judge Elmo B. Hunter Legal Centre for Victims of Crimes Against Women at Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law, Crikey Moses, mm-hmm. that's quite the title. I saw it out a bit Sesame Street and then it went <laughs> wrong really quickly. <laughs> anyway, after she got like through delivering a name, she said, what is clear is that these seemingly semantic changes, even if not yet embodied in official law or policy, are part of a broader trend towards the devaluation of women by this administration and this president. Absolutely. So Vivla change in November. How's that going, Hannah? Yeah, the, the I will do something because a couple of people actually asked me to explain it to them this week and I was like, do you know what, I haven't got time to understand it myself to explain it to someone. But it's not going well, the impeachment thing. Basically, the Republicans are trying very hard not just to not find him guilty but also stop what he did being impeachable. an impeachable offence in the first place, which is not good. If you don't like what you've been done for, change the fact that you can be done for it. Yeah. Rand Paul, I don't know if you remember him, he ran in the last, you will have remember him from mm. the last Donkeys and Elephants. Yeah. He's very sweaty. Yes. Actually, yes, yes, a, actually yes. a doctor, but an anti-vaxxer. Just an absolute moron who actually oh, stormed God. out of proceedings. But it's not going so well for Elizabeth Warren in the de- uh, Democratic. Bernie Sanders is now seemingly charging ahead. And the interesting point about that is oh, you must have seen this thing about Joe Rogan. Indeed. Yeah. But yeah. tell us more. Okay, so Joe Rogan, a controversial figure. There's no two ways about it. Very, um, I wouldn't say necessarily uh, right wing. I would say so he's certainly libertarian. Yeah, uh, he's definitely in a libertarian. His, in his views. But he has said things in the past that are undoubtedly. Uh, sexist that were undoubtedly racist and he uh, had Bernie Sanders on his podcast and after ha- having Bernie Sanders on his podcast which is very very well listened to uh, decided to endorse Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders retweeted the endorsement causing the left to, in America to absolutely collapse in on itself demanding that Bernie Sanders reject this endorsement because Joe Rogan isn't the sort of person they want voting for him, and Joe Rogan's followers aren't the sort of person they want voting for them. And I'm absolutely staggered that, well, clearly what's infected momentum is starting to infect the Democratic Party at the same time. That ideological purity is more important than winning. The less eaten itself. Well, we just live in a we live in an age of extremism, basically, don't we? On both sides, I mm. think. Like the loudest voices are the most extreme, and that's you know, like in the last election, I fucking know it would never have happened, and indeed did not. But if Piers Morgan had gone, actually, I'm going to back Jeremy Corbyn. There is absolutely no way I would have been saying no. Yeah. No, no, I don't want you to. Because yeah. I wanted people to vote for Labour. Yeah, you wanted them to win. And if an influential person is going to try and influence some people, that's actually good, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, isn't because, because... Jen did a little double thumbs up like yeah. Rock on Tommy then. But, what, but you're absolutely right, Jen, because because part of the, the thing that's attracted them to Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders is saying something different to the usual Democratic sort of nomination. So they're clearly drawn to, Joe Rogan is clearly drawn to extremism, so where are he and his followers going to go if they don't go there? They're going to go back to Trump. Yeah. They're not going to go to Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) They're going to go full on Trump at that point. 
It's insane. Anyway, that's how it's going in America, Mickey. Not good. Oh, oh dear. Well, a bit of light relief now from Anne Frank, CEO. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not ideal, is it? Sorry. She's uh, the CEO of the Chartered Management Institute. Frank made the headlines last week after she suggested workplaces should cut down on sports chat in a bid to foster more inclusive environments for women, offending absolutely everyone in the process. Equal opportunity offending. Yeah, yeah. And it's fairly easy to see why, to be fair, as when she was speaking on the BBC's Today programme last week, she added that such exclusionary chat could lead to laddish behaviour, including bants about sexual conquests. Sex bants. Sex bants. Football bants. Sex bants. (laughs) It's obvious. Oh, it's different. (laughs) She said a lot of women in particular feel left out. They don't follow those sports and they don't like either being forced to talk about them or not being included. But being forced. And I mean, no, like, well, just yeah. like, we fucking say something. I remember, I remember Shearer. I said something. <laughs> oh, Shearer. Well, yeah, like, you can, you can just walk away. But yeah. I suppose the point is, if you did that, you'd be excluded. So I think she's got a point. If you're not into sports, sports chat is dull. But it's not offensive. But, like, there are lots of things. There are lots of dull things that people talk about in their workplace and, indeed, society at large. Love Island. Yeah. Don't give yeah. a fuck. Most topics relating to their children. Sorry, yeah. I'm sure they're lovely, but I, nicest possible way, don't really care. Snooze first. I hope she remembers she said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, we are, are big news at the in fairness, In fairness, Hannah, we are recording this. <laughs> <laughs> what they dreamt about last night, that's the worst thing anyone can talk about at length. I, I had think. this mad dream last night. And it's not real, no. I don't care. <laughs> away, I yeah. just don't care. And probably EastEnders, though you'll never convince me of that. Anyway, so surely the advice should be, has the person you're talking to said anything in the last five minutes? Do they look bored? Stop being boring. It seems like a good rule to have. I think so. So the problem with, with Frank's comments is that making it a sort of men versus women issue does a massive disservice to everyone. Firstly, if you're assuming women don't want to talk about sport, well, that's not very inclusive. <laughs> Secondly, to say if you let men wang on at length about VAR before you know it, they'll be telling you about the time they were nuts deep in Falawaki is well, it's quite sexist, isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. And thirdly, there are plenty of men who don't like sports chat either. Yeah. And I could go on, but Hannah and Mickey look quite bored. The thing is, I don't even think that it, even if men do talk about sport, like quite a lot sort of amongst themselves, I mean, provided it's not stopping you from working, I don't feel the need to be included in every conversation exactly. that's going on around me. It comes up with this idea that we're going to have to write a list. If you had to write a list of the things that 20 people were all interested on, you'd end up talking about, like, well... The weather. At least we have all washed up once. Let's talk about that. So, in fairness to Frank, who I'm sure also drew quite a lot of ire from the political correctness gone mad brigade, which is also quite damaging to women and our cause, given that we have some fairly reasonable points to make about gender inequality... Mm-hmm. She did later apologise. So a few days later, she tweeted, I'm sorry to everyone I've offended this week. Re sports chat at work. I believe it's best to own up to and learn from your mistakes. So Hannah and Mickey, I'm very sorry for all the ITV dramas I've spoken about (laughs) outside the box. Occasionally there's a good one. Yeah, every 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week which I quite often refer back to when I'm trying to work out why I feel so incredibly sad. Oh yeah, all the atrocities against women that I talk about on a weekly basis. 
And so it's with a very heavy heart I bring up the Marry Your Rapist Bill set to be introduced in Turkey. The bill will release scores of men who have been sentenced for committing statutory rape, currently estimated to stand at around 4,000, on the condition they marry their victim. Does the victim get a say in this? (laughs) Hollow laughter, people. Hollow laughter. No? No. Sharp. So whether there will be a limit as to the age difference between the two parties is still undecided. And if there is, it will probably be set at either 10 or 15 years, which it goes without saying doesn't make everything all right then. Many have taken to the streets in protest, and that worked back in 2016, which was when the first attempt to pass this bill happened. But President Erdogan seems so set on growing his country's population, something which this bill is seen to help because marriage equals legitimate children and young wives mean more fertile years, that it looks likely to go through this time. The message is horrifically clear. Women are baby makers, nothing more. Hello, we, and by we, I mean all three of us, Hannah... Hello. Jen. Hi. And me, Ofs, are joined by actor, writer and musician Katie Arnstein. Katie, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. So you are here to tell us about Sticky Door, which is the third and final part of your It's a Girl trilogy. Let's start there. What inspired It's a Girl and what is it all about? Uh, So the title It's a Girl came from a quote that I found from a politician who I'm going to start very badly and forget her name, but um, she said that it's a girl and the stereotyping and the prejudice that is handed down to young women starts from the moment the doctor says it's a girl. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really interesting place to start. Shirley Chisholm, that's her name. When oh, the American. The American, yeah. yeah so she's the first black woman Senator. in Congress. Yeah. yeah so um, phenomenal. So sorry, Shirley. And, um, <laughs> she's a big fan of the show. <laughs> um, and I started writing a storytelling show a few years ago called Bicycles and Fish, which was set when I was uh, at secondary school. I followed that on with a show called Sex lamp which um i've been touring since then incredible times oh very kind of you and then this is sticky door so it's the third part and this is all about um all of the shows are about feminism sexism becoming a woman and how society influences that and what society says a woman should be and needs to be bicycles and fish was about when you just you felt like you were becoming a woman Mm -hmm. and sexy lamp was about your sort of experiences within the entertainment industry right that's right And Sticky Door is your very honest and funny look at sex, dating and feminism. And you genuinely put yourself out there for this one, right? Yes, I did. So this is all, they're all sort of autobiographical, but this is um, one that I'm reluctant for my parents to see. (laughs) Which is, um, it's set in 2014 and I felt very out of control of a lot of aspects of my life. But particularly, I just realised that I wasn't really in control of any of my relationships. So I was newly single and I decided to have um, a new sexual partner for every month of the year (laughs) with no strings attached so I was very upfront and honest and basically Rain Man style was like would you like to come home with me and some people were like okay (laughs) and um, it's a story about that and but also how it affected my mental health how the people I was with saw me and the journey that I went on that year. What did you learn about the dating scene and about yourself? I learned a lot I mean I went on I went on Tinder which is sort of like the dick pick metropolis and that was eye-opening and and a little bit uncomfortable for me but also I was also battling something sort of inside to to get to that point and this show sort of explores what it was that led me to that point and I learned that it's important to be strong on your own and know who you are before you let anyone else come into your life and how that should be the the sort of the center for me before I open myself up to anyone else. Mm-hmm. I think. 
And what were the experiences on the dating scene? Did you feel like you were an anomaly doing this or did you feel like that you were in good company with other women now doing this? Has it, has it kind of opened your eyes to stuff? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I got a lot of support from the people around me. They were like, that sounds, do it safely and that's absolutely fine. But it was also um, in 2014 when Jeremy Hunt released the poster, there was that terrible campaign where it said one in three victims of rape have been drinking that night and it was just, that came out in the middle of that year and I just thought that was such a shocking victim blaming <sighs> campaign. That doesn't sound like Jeremy Hunt or the Conservative government, well, does it? we're all allowed a day off, aren't we? But um, <laughs> he was, um, that really shook me. The fact that I was consenting to some things but not to others and where that line comes in relationships. But also, I found that, you know, I had had boyfriends in the past and meeting them and saying, I want to do this, do you want to do it with me? And sort of have that consent in a conversation before anything happened was actually really liberating because it wasn't... You know, I've been in relationships before where things have happened during sex, for example, and because there wasn't a discussion about it, I felt that a line had been crossed that I didn't consent to it being yep. crossed. But this was a way of saying, this is what I'm interested in. Here is here is the emotional sort of stuff that I'm going to give you, and it's going to be very limited. Are you interested? Yes or no? Here's what we can do in it. And that, I learned a lot from that about how to communicate with partners since then and feeling that I'm safe and in control of the sexual experience as well. We had the brilliant campaign We Can't Consent to This Come and Talk to Us mm -hmm. and that is very much based on this increase in choking during sex right. and strangling during sex yeah. and as you can say yeah I want to have sex with you but like if that just starts to happen mm -hmm. it's really hard then to get out of that situation the onus is on you to get out of that situation yeah. and it can quite quickly turn nasty mm -hmm. so I guess going in there with a set of rules did it put your mind at rest a little bit in some ways yeah I mean it didn't work out brilliantly for the whole year and there were some lines that were crossed during it which I'm very openly talking about in the show Particularly, I felt that I wasn't empowered when I was learning about sex through education and through early stages of sex. We didn't talk about consent at school. We didn't, we didn't, I didn't know about it. I, I learned through magazines and through, you know, seeing clips of sex in the city and, know, and learning that way, which is not a healthy or empowering way to learn about something that is so important to my development and, and who I am that I find... It's staggering, really, that I think nothing's changed in that way. And I've, I did some research for the show, and I found that sex education in the UK hasn't changed since the year 2000. It's going to change, which is, well, tw which is 20, 20 years, years ago. It's a whole generation, and that doesn't... So it means, presumably, that people aren't talking about porn, they're not talking about things that are so readily available. Social media. Social media. In the last you, 20 years. Exactly. Camera phones. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All the, you know, the nudes and the fact mm. that I made mistakes when I was younger. But unless you saved my MSN conversation, I'm free of that. Like, I, I didn't, if I had a camera phone, I know that I'd have got in trouble and those things that I, things that I did would have haunted me as they haunt young people. Because I think well, you were mentioning education and the lack of how it addresses girls and young women and consent, sexual pleasure, what you need to do and don't need to do, but also this whole socialisation of girls as making ourselves people pleasers and accessible. So mm -hmm. if someone goes, oh, if you don't send me nudes, I'm going to dump you, you, you kind of like, I imagine there's a pressure to, to please someone and to, to kind of keep that person and be, be seen to be doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find myself firmly in that group and 
as a person, regardless of whether it's, um, you know, sex or not, I do want to please and I want to make people happy and I try and accommodate people's needs. And that just is um, magnified in a sexual relationship, I think, and, and not knowing that I had a power to say no because it's not supported by the legal system, in my opinion. It's not supported by examples that we see on social media, in the news. You know, we know that when you are accusing someone of something, as we're seeing with Weinstein's, I guess, one of the biggest examples at the yeah. moment, the people who are accusing him are on the stand as much as he is, in my opinion, oh, about what more. they were wearing, what did they want, what did... And if you look at the, the Cyprus case, I oh mean, you were gosh. saying about camera phones, you would feel like the one benefit of camera phones was that actually evidence yeah, yeah. is available. Mm-hmm. But even evidence didn't yeah. stand up in that sense. Well, mm-hmm. it just wasn't admitted. Yeah. And there was there was a case in France, I think, where um, it was f- filmed a woman was gang-raped and she didn't scream. So because she didn't scream loud enough or something, they said, well, she, you know. But we know, we know sexism is not often done in the public space. Yeah. We know it's a private thing. We know it's like often one-on-one and it's not the big, you know, it's not just honking from vans as you're driving past, which is witnessed by more people. It's the subtle whispers in the corridor as you're walking past your colleague or it's the the being followed home and, and it's on a private scale and that's why it's so rife. So to suggest that you know how to deal with it to make it a public crime is, is I think, terrible. You know, We're not armed to make it a public problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's private and... and we're not taught about consent. We're not taught what our rights are. And, and that's why we're in such a dangerous situation, in my opinion. Did you find yourself in any dangerous situations? I did. And uh, it's something that I talk about in the show and without giving too much away. I'm very lucky that nothing extremely terrible happened. But through writing this show, I realised that all the little things that had led to me being in that position at the age of 22, 23 included so many small micro-sexisms that had sort of silenced me up until that point that I didn't know that, it, you know, it was, it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And it wasn't a terrible sexual assault, but it was something that totally silenced me. And it went from me not feeling safe on, you know, I, I was um, in trouble when I was 16 years old, and that happened in a very public place. And nobody came to my aid. So what that told me was that you sort of deserve this and so I carried that with me I've worked out and then you know through acting and some things that I've been made to do in in my workspace when no one says that's wrong you you there's another option to this I didn't I didn't learn that there was and so when it's one-on-one and it's in a sexual situation I didn't have the voice of the other people who have stood up for me so I so I stayed silent and that's what I'm trying to fight with this show and sort of hopefully empower the audience regardless of their gender and how they identify to find a, a voice to to know what their rights are and, and where they can stop consent at any point and there are songs on the ukulele as well to bring because doesn't that sound like a comedy <laughs> doesn't that sound like an absolute lull fest so i um also play uh, the ukulele the most professional of instruments to write um some songs and they're in all three of the shows and there are some songs on the ukulele in this one because i think i wanted to write these shows to sort of change people's minds about some things and we tackle some serious issues as we've discussed and i've never changed my mind on something because someone's yelled at me i think songs are an interesting way of getting people on board 
and then if you can deliver a message within that then you sort of can leave singing it and then being like oh that's about consent or something like that so, yeah, so that's why they're that's why they're in there it's interesting as well isn't it because the ukulele to me the, the ukulele pick a song that's played on the ukulele first thing that always go to would be when I'm cleaning, when I'm cleaning windows, windows. Yeah. Yeah. which is like a Wigan real man. which is a real sort of like nudge nudge wink wink attitude to set mm-hmm. so you're talking about like a real grown up attitude yeah. to set <laughs> yes, on the ukulele sorry. yeah I guess yeah. so I did um yeah, George Formby was a big... Well, I knew about George Formby as soon as I started playing the ukulele and then I started busking when I came to London to try and get a few coins and people would always say, do you know... <laughs> you know, I'd learned, like, the kinks and, and some... And then, some, and then they just wanted Formby. So I learned <laughs> so I learned Formby for well, him. This is brand new information because I always thought it was a banjo. No. Oh, no, ukulele. Yeah. When I worked for Metro and we were up at the Edinburgh Festival, there was a show there one year called Learn to Play the Ukulele in an Hour. And my boss thought it'd be a really lovely idea if I went and did the show and interviewed the, the, the guys behind it mm-hmm. and learnt to play the ukulele in an hour and then went busking at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I was like, what have I done to make you hate me? <laughs> I earned no money, but I did have a lovely time. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, the ukulele. It gets a lot of stick, though. It does. I think it's the new recorder. I think it's one. Uh, I think it's one. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, thank goodness this is here. Like, I was surely a bit harder than the recorder. I think a, a, li- a little bit. But I'm not I'm not as musical as I wish I was, so I, I can get through a ukulele song, but anything more complex than that I can't. I wish the listeners could see that Katie just keeps looking lovingly in the direction of her oh, ukulele. <laughs> they are quite common in musical comedy, aren't mm-hmm. they? I think possibly because they're quite easy to shift around as well, exactly, rather than yeah. carrying a big guitar with you all the yeah. time. Because I wanted to be, a, when I graduated from drama school, I was 21, and I, I didn't have a brilliant agent and all of that stuff, I thought, I, I will be an actor musician. That's what I'll do, and I'll pick up a ukulele. And again, no one's like, "Thank goodness!" But um, it's kept it's kept me going for a little while. So I'm glad. Can I ask you mm. what made you embark on this mission, this like year long voyage of sexual? The discovery? 2014 plan. Yeah, I'd just been broken up with, and I felt really out of control. That was sort of the the cherry on top of the cake, and it was just a, it was just a bad year. 2013 was a bad year for me. I got rid of my agent. I had a terrible audition um, where I was told to do it topless. I was living in a flat above a fried chicken shop in Brixton, so my whole body smelt of a bargain bucket. <laughs> I um, had was left... that your Tinder profile? That was my my yeah my Tinder profile was actually aroused but melancholic because I was <laughs> quite um, I was quite down at the time. But it just I just felt like why am I in the city trying to be an actor? None of this is working for me. There is something that I can control, and I'm not going to be heartbroken this year. I'm going to take control of of my sexuality and and go out and meet people. So it was about controlling. It was just a, it was about like sort of having something you could control. I emotionally. think so. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think of it as a as a huge thing at the time, but it was sort of a New Year's resolution, and I thought I can be in control of this. I can stop my heart being broken, and I can not give myself completely to someone. I can hold something back and, and take control of that. 25 years I've been doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but can you play anything on the ukulele? I can't. You fucking can't. I can't, no. <laughs> I think the stereotype, Hannah aside in this one, is that women can't do that because we will get attached. That's what I'd always, I'd always heard that. And mm. I think because I'd heard that, I felt it more than, more than I naturally would have done. I thought, oh, I am supposed to get attached or I am supposed to be 
very connected. And I saw that in all the films that I saw and all the TV shows showed the doting girlfriend and the guys being a stud around town or whatever. That's the thing, isn't it? I don't Hormone know if it's, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, if that's just what they say on Sex in the City. But yeah, there's what a thing it? about that apparently when women have sex with like a new sexual partner, they release a hormone that makes them attached, attached to the sexual partner because the idea is it will like increase your chance of getting pregnant. Oh, right. It's also worth pointing mm. out that it's dramatically interesting when it comes to literature or television mm-hmm. and things. Someone just, just going off and sleeping with someone and then it turning out to be the person that they were meant to be with all along yeah. is dramatically interesting. You mm. go in, all right, see you later, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I won't see you later. Yeah, exactly no, I just, I've just always wondered if that fact, in inverted commas, about hormones was actually true or not. Can we talk about the phrase sticky door? Yeah. Because you're sort of using it as an alternative to glass ceiling, right? Exactly, Could you yeah. explain, please? Yeah, so the title comes from um, a Desert Island Disc episode that I heard. Kirsty Young was interviewing uh, a lady called Dame Manu Shafiq, and she was the deputy CEO of the Bank of England. And Kirsty Young basically said to her, you've said that you don't like the idea of a glass ceiling, you prefer the sticky door, can you explain that to me? And she said that the idea of a glass ceiling suggests that if one person is banging their head against something and it shatters, then everyone can come Mm. through. And she said in her experience, that that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. For her, it was more like a sticky door. She said, you have to push against it. Someone has to be the other side and let you get through it. And then once you're through, the door will close again and it's up to you to help the next person through. And when I heard that, that made just so much more sense to me. And I think it takes away as well the defence that people use against sort of women when they are in positions of power like when Margaret Thatcher for example was Prime Minister people go you tried it once it didn't go very well women can't be in power and that is so that glass ceiling was shattered by Margaret Thatcher but it doesn't mean that it encouraged a lot of women to want to go into politics necessarily and it didn't mean that men in politics thought that women should lead. No, they just said, look what happens, they turn up, break the ceiling, we've exactly. got to get a new ceiling. Exactly. <laughs> uh, whereas the door, I, I much prefer the door metaphor, and, and that is true in my life, that it's been not even knowing what's on the other side of things, just really trying to get through, and then someone lets me lets me pass through, and then it's up to me, I think, to let the next person through. It just It, it was a helpful metaphor for me and in Sticky Door we're talking about taking up space and the the spaces you're allowed to occupy as a woman and how we get there and so it's just a really useful grounding in in the talking about the issues in the show. It's a great metaphor. Is it? Yeah. Please allow me to be lowest common denominator for a second. Mm. Is it also a, a sort of reference to your vagina? So that comes into it too. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was just thinking about we were talking about um, you know entrances into the world and how how we how we start and it goes back to calling the trilogy. It's a girl. I'm one of three sisters. When we come into the first space that we inhabit, there's already those stereotypes and gender biases on us when we're fetal I don't think that's particularly helpful I don't think gender is um, necessarily a, a positive thing in in all aspects of life it's very hard though it's so um, it's so deep rooted because I'm I'm pregnant and I've, I'm having a girl but mm. as soon as I got pregnant I was like it's a boy it's definitely a boy I'm really pleased it's a boy because we're going to watch football together and have bands no. now I work on a feminist podcast <laughs> and I watch a lot of football yes. and stuff like that why did I have like that's that is a mad illogical thing for me to think 
given my life and what I do and whatever. But it's so ingrained in you. Exactly. It's weird. I think it's yeah. like relearning a language in, in a way. Like we know what... Well, you, I've learned a certain way growing up. Then I've spent a few years trying to challenge that in, in all the ways. But then the, the still, the uh, sort of natural language that I have because I was given it, is the wrong one for mm. me. But I'm the same as you. I used to be. I'm a, I'm a Chelsea fan. Who do you support? Charlton Athletic. Charlton. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> that is the response of everyone when you tell them you support Charlton. They go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> so Sticky Door is part of Vault Festival and is on at the Vaults in London from Tuesday the 11th until Sunday the 16th of February. And if you want more info on that, please check out vaultfestival.com. And Katie, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? I have a website. Uh, it's katiearnstein.com and uh, all the upcoming shows of uh, the tour are on there. And I'm also on Twitter, but not, not very much. Um, I'm, I'm at Katie Arnstein, but me and my best friend Hells have just swapped our passwords so we don't keep procrastinating. <laughs> that is the sensible amount of Twitter to be on. Do you think? Yeah. Just, a, a, just sort of not much. Yeah, just <laughs> sort of dabble in it. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's good for my mental health, but very bad for ticket sales. So if you want to, so yeah, the 11th to the 16th of February, please come. Thank you so much for coming to talk to I us. I had such a lovely time. Thank you so much. London. I want you to imagine I'm giving you that look that your mum did when she bought you that really expensive toy you've been nagging her for for Christmas and then you never played with it. If we're going to keep doing shows in London, we need you to turn up. And here's your chance. Consider it your Valentine's Day present to us because our next show is February the 14th where our guests will be actor and all-round gem Pauline Feckin McLean and political correspondent, comedian and withstander of Twitter twattage, Aisha Hazarika. So, if you want to spend Valentine's Day with a bunch of welcoming women, get yourself over to our website, standardissuepodcast.com. I'm joined on the phone all the way from, I guess not very sunny, probably quite cold, New York, journalist and author of Brain on Fire and now the new book, The Great Pretender, Susanna Cahalan. Hi! Hi, thank you so much for having me. So your new book was sort of born out of an experience that you had a little while ago, a good few years ago now, where you were misdiagnosed with a mental illness, which you wrote about in your book, Brain on Fire. So that's probably a pretty good place to start because that's kind of led into where we are now with The Great Pretender. Do you want to tell us a bit about that experience? It all was born out of that experience. And I think, you know, there was before the illness struck and then after. And, you know, The Great Pretender really came from that experience. So it was 2009 and I was 24 years old. I was starting out as a, as a reporter in New York City. And it kind of began as a out-of-control feeling of depression and morphed very quickly from there into what I can really describe as kind of mania, psychosis. My feelings kind of fluctuate wildly from one moment when I was hysterically crying under my desk to the next moment when I would, you know, talk rapidly and have these very grandiose uh, views about my career and, you know, kind of uh, talking to my editor in this fast-paced manner. And then uh, it kind of escalated even further. Uh, I had my first seizure and then I started to have active hallucinations, you know, seeing and hearing things that were not there. That obviously very much frightened everyone to the point where ultimately, finally, my, my parents were able to get me treatment in a hospital. And I spent the next month of my life there 
with various misdiagnoses, including bipolar disorder and then schizoaffective disorder. And then I got very lucky and a very brilliant neurologist and epileptologist ultimately diagnosed me with a newly discovered form of brain disease, an autoimmune brain disease called autoimmune encephalitis. That was all in in 2009 when that happened. How quickly did that escalate? Because that must have been terrifying. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, it escalated so quickly. And in fact, that became ultimately helpful a little bit because of how quickly it Mm. it, it kind of grew from that depression into this active mania and psychosis became kind of a sign for some of the doctors to kind of start to do some more investigative tests like the lumbar puncture, you know, the spinal tap that ultimately Mm. diagnosed me. But I was in the hospital for a month. And I would say the illness you know, it's now it's it's me looking back and trying to trace the origins. Like, when did this start? And I would say a couple months before I was hospitalized. So we're talking a matter of about three months wow. from from really the first symptoms to the to the final diagnosis. That misdiagnosis, obviously, that's quite a big life event. And absolutely, after that happened, you were talking to various people about this, and someone told you about a study by uh, Dr. David Rosenhan, which was something of a landmark study. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, the way that I came about it was that after my my book came out, there was a movie about it. You know, I, I was inundated with emails and people trying to contact me from all over the world. You know, from people who either they thought they had the illness that I had or perhaps they, they or their loved ones had some kind of what was called psychiatric illness that they felt wasn't correct or they were being ignored or marginalized. And so, you know, I started to realize that, you know, the issues that I raise in Brain on Fire, which I didn't even know I was raising, but the kind of question of what is mental illness and how do we separate physical illness from mental ones really resonated with people. And at one point I was talking at a psychiatric hospital in North Carolina. I I was talking to a room full of psychiatrists and, and support staff and doctors and nurses. And and afterwards, a doctor came up to me and said, I think we have someone here who might have what you had. And uh, I, I ultimately did find out that two weeks later, she went through testing and she was diagnosed with the same illness that I had. But there was a marked difference between us, you know, you know, whereas kind of my symptoms only lasted for about three months. She was misdiagnosed for several years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, she had been misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. And the doctor who I spoke to um, several times said that she would never fully recover in the way that I had, and that she would, in his words, operate the rest of her life as a, as a permanent child. And so, you know, the, the kind of stakes of these questions and getting this wrong are so high. And so I was telling this story to uh, neuroscientists from MIT Harvard who had attended one of my talks, and we went out to dinner afterwards, and I talked about that experience, which had really, really haunted me. And um, one of them, a, a woman named Deborah Levy, suggested she said you know you're kind of a modern day pseudo patient and at that time I had no idea what she meant Mm. by that I I didn't you know and she said oh you know that study where the people went undercover in hospitals and I had vaguely heard about it it's one of those studies that at least in America and I know in the UK it's it's taught very broadly as well but it's taught in almost every psych 101 class and it's kind of included in every history of psychiatry it's one of those landmark classic studies and so that night, I, I, I read it for the like, kind of really for the first time in depth, and really it just grabbed me immediately, just completely, just kind of took over the next six years of my life. Well, you had quite a lot of material to sort of dig into, didn't you? Because Dr. David Rosenhan was going to write a book about it. 
Right. And he had a deal with a publisher, didn't he? And he basically decided yep. not to publish his book. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago now. And yes. so you were able to access all of his papers and really go through it again. And you found out some quite surprising information, didn't you, when you started to sort of delve into it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you're first reading that, you know, the whole premise of the study, you have these eight people, they go undercover in psychiatric hospitals. All they do is they say they hear a voice that says thud, empty or hollow. And based just on that, they're all misdiagnosed with serious mental illness, mostly with schizophrenia. You know, that really, you know, appealed to me. And I thought of my mirror image and I thought, how much has really changed since then? But there were other things in that paper, too, that I that really kind of grabbed me, like the description of what it's like to be labeled with a psychiatric condition versus a physical one and you know the idea of depersonalization and there's so much that really the study actually kind of reads like fiction Mm. (laughs) you know it's really engrossing and and so yes like as you said I I kind of thought there's more of a story here than the nine pages written in science and so I started to investigate and and you know I one of the first kind of exciting things that I found was this unpublished book that you mentioned but it also raised one of the early questions of like what's going on here because he had written this almost an entire book he had had a major publisher he had a big advance yet he never he never finished it and in fact the publisher ended up suing him and so it raised these questions of why and he also had never really published again on this topic and i can't overstress i mean this study just 6 years after it's it was written was included in 80% of intro to psych textbooks i mean it, it became part of the curriculum and part of the core belief system very fast and I thought, we don't really know much about it. And so that kind of started me off on a lot of other questions that would lead me to uncovering many more kind of issues with, with the paper. I don't want to be too uh, spoilery, <laughs> as it were, because uh, obviously we want people to go and read the book. But you found some problems with the study, yes. didn't you? Yes, I did. I did. So yes. a lot of people study this. So what kind of impact do you think these findings could have? Well, you know, you know, what was amazing to me was when I was investigating the study, which I didn't realize I was, I was going to investigate it. I thought I was going to be writing a book kind of exalting it. And the more I started to uncover and the greater questions started to emerge, I realized that this had turned into an investigation. And so I didn't just investigate the study itself, but I investigated the, the effect it had on psychiatry in general. And, you know, it had an effect on everything from the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is considered the Bible of American psychiatry and has a big effect on, on UK psychiatry as well. And it also had a huge effect on the kind of rising anti-psychiatry movement, which was this belief that psychiatry didn't know what the hell it was doing. And so this study very much supported that and continues to do so. I mean, you can find now Reddit pages devoted to this study as a kind of um, proof that psychiatry can't tell the difference, as David Rosenhan writes in in the paper, between sanity and insanity. And then there was a third effect, which I, I kind of didn't realize until I really started to dig in, was that it had a huge effect on, on the deinstitutionalization movement and the move toward the ineffectual move towards community care. And so once I started to realize the place, the kind of outsized effect that this study had on the history and on our modern day life today, those issues started to become, I think, more important for the world to know. Misdiagnosis is not that uncommon. And the blurring of the of lines between sort of physical and mental conditions right. as well. One of the things we talk about quite a lot on the podcast is about 
how women who report physical pain to doctors are often not taken particularly seriously and they're branded, I don't know, hysterical or, mm-hmm. or a hypochondriac or, you know, it's all in your mind, etc., etc. So you had a physical Absolutely. condition that was misdiagnosed as a, as a mental illness or a psychiatric illness. When you're sort of looking at those blurred lines, do you think it is common for women not to be taken seriously when they present with with sort of physical conditions and also are are mental illnesses taken seriously by the medical profession when they're reported by women oh i mean i'm so glad you brought this up because this is a passion of mine and i think you are hitting it directly on the head when women complain of any kind of symptoms you know typically pain related things are less measurable right because you know, I think in medicine, we're obsessed with what can we see, what can we feel, what can we touch? And when there are things that aren't, that we aren't able to quantify in that matter, a lot of things, especially when we're talking about women and people of color, are dismissed uh, oftentimes as being in the head or in the mind, right? And it, this always, this really gets me angry because I think, why would something being in the mind make it any less legitimate? You know, the mind is the seat of everything. You know, I just recently read a book about the role that they're seeing in these kind of tiny brain cells called microglia. It can have effect on mood, on cognition, everything. So, you know, when we separate out mind, brain, it's all in our head. It's so primitive. It's so anachronistic. It's so misguided. And, you know, what's interesting to me too, in the research that I've done in this area is that autoimmune diseases, which, you know, we only have begun to scratch the surface of really understanding the effect of autoimmune diseases and the immune system on the brain and the body. These disproportionately affect women. I mean, I think 70 to 80% of autoimmune diseases affect women. And in the illness that I had, it's about that number too. So it raises all these questions that down the line, I think that many things that were in the past dismissed as mental, I think we will find, you know, the kind of interaction between brain, mind, body is so intricate. It's so complex that hopefully one day in, the, in, in my lifetime, we will just do away with, with those distinctions. That's what I hope. What you've just said there about how actually the mind is quite important. I mean, I, I've, obviously, we have very different healthcare systems in the UK to the US. You know, I've been to doctors before where I've said, oh, it's probably nothing, but, you know, just mm. a bit worried about this. And they'd say, oh, well, we'll refer you anyway. You know, and I'd say, oh, well, I think it's probably silly. And they'd say, well, even if you are, it's actually better for you not to be stressed out by thinking you might be ill. So wouldn't it be better if we just checked anyway? Which doesn't happen so much anymore now that the NHS has no money whatsoever. Thanks, government. Right. I want to I say something. You know, it's mm. so interesting that you frame your suffering or, you know, what you would describe as discomfort or whatever as it's silly. I mean, and I think that happens a lot with women. And mm. I've been hearing from a lot of advocates out there to actually tell women to, it's, it's a strange thing to say, but to almost really overplay it to the doctor, because so often we as women kind of, we, we downplay the symptoms that we're feeling. And in fact, they've, there have been studies about pain and comparing genders, and actually women tend to downplay the pain that they're experiencing, like even in lab settings. We're taught to be people pleasers, aren't we? So right, sort of exactly. making a fuss is not, doesn't really sort of fall within that remit. One of the things you say in the book is that actually giving something a name is the most important thing in many cases. Why do you think we need that? I've talked to so many people in the trenches who, who exist and you know, are suffering and who can't find their answers, or maybe they're given answers that they feel are, are not accurate. I mean, I think being a part of a kind of a, a group 
of people who are suffering too, who you feel you can identify with and gets very powerful. I also think that giving something a name makes it real because so often, especially when you're talking about things that kind of overlap with, you know, mental anguish and suffering there, you can kind of discount it as being less real. And I think once we get something that has has kind of jargon attached to it, it has science attached to it, it has the literature attached to it, I think it's very important in the kind of medical view. Once you have a name, it's something that is studyable. You can talk about, okay, well, uh, on average, this is, you know, um, how long it takes for recovery to happen. You know, you can actually start to to kind of study things when they are grouped together under names and under banners. So I do think, you know, even though I think that um, a lot of the names that we use sometimes have less legitimacy, um, less validity than we'd like to believe. I still believe that names have so much power and especially within within diagnosis and in, in the kind of medical sense. One of the things you pick up on as well when you're talking about Rosenhan's study quite early on is about how in the 70s madness in inverted commas was almost seen as sort of like artistic or, or like yes. you know something that like almost cool in a way. I don't know it seems to me that at the moment mental health problems are kind of on the rise so there's things now that like 20 years ago I can't remember anyone talking about anxiety for example yes whereas now almost everyone seems to have anxiety do you think that's because we're paying more attention to these things or have we kind of come full circle and we're all over analyzing again oh oh what a great question I mean I don't want to say that you know, it's hard to say for sure what's going on. I mean, especially when we're talking about anxiety, you know, specifically. I mean, modern culture has changed so much in the last 30 years. And I think you can actually, like, see the way that social media, the rise of the yeah. Internet, all that has had an effect on cognition yeah, and the brain and, and, and emotion. But however, it's one of those, like, chicken or the egg problems because, you know, we are way more aware of the issue, right? Our, even, you know, in, the, in America, our, our general practitioners are kind of trained to screen people for depression and anxiety in a way they would never have been 30 years ago. So of course, we're going to have higher rates of diagnosis. Doesn't mean that we've had this, you know, exponential rise, if you look at the numbers, you know, as the numbers indicate, or is it more complicated? Is it a combination of many factors? Is it the fact that maybe we are overdiagnosing? Is it the fact that you can't, you know, test the blood and know, oh, this person has an anxiety disorder? It's very man-made, right? It's very open to interpretation. It's subjective. I, I think that there are kind of multifaceted issues. And, and I think some of them legitimately do come down to a rise in, that we're more anxious, you know, in general. Now, there's a lot of things to be anxious about, yeah, sure. as we all well know, yeah. you know. Well, the research that you've been undertaking for the book, as you say, it's taken six years. It's a long, yeah. long time. You must have had lots and lots of other avenues open to you during that time. So what's next? Where, where will this oh. lead you next? <laughs> Well, it's so funny because I, I was just going through my, my research just to kind of like look at all the places I didn't get to go or I only got to gesture to. I mean, I went down so many rabbit holes as evident in the book, but I didn't even remotely include many of the rabbit holes. Anyway, that's a long answer for a very short. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'm going next, but I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with these issues and, you know, and it's coming, it comes obviously from a very self-involved place, but I, I do think that, um, these questions of, you know, diagnosis, what is mental illness? I mean, these are these are questions that will follow me the rest of my life. I'm, I'm sure of it. The Great Pretender is available now from all good bookshops and online. 
published by Cannon Gates. Where can we find you if we want to keep an eye on which particular rabbit hole you end up going down oh. next? Well, thank you for asking. I'm terrible at social media, but I'm trying. I'm on Instagram at S-U-S Cahalan, my last name. And I, I'm on Facebook terribly as a, a kind of Susanna Cahalan author page. But Do you have a website or anything that we can... Oh, yes, I do. I do. Yes. It's SusannaCahalan.com. Thanks so much for talking to me. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought... As you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined by personal trainer and author of Train Happy, Tally Y. Hello, Tally. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking to me. We are at the fifth birthday event for the This Girl Can campaign. Just wanted to ask you, how did you come to be involved in the campaign and, and why did you want to be involved? So I've admired the campaign from afar for a while, having seen it kind of on billboards near where I live and just feeling really uplifted from that to seeing, to speaking to people who are more involved in the community aspects of This Girl Can because I know that they've got kind of people who are regionally involved. And then during research for my book, Train Happy, that you mentioned, I was looking into This Girl Can as a great example of ways to make fitness feel more inclusive and accessible and welcoming. So when they asked, do you want to come and talk about it? I was like, absolutely. I really can get behind everything they're about. I really think they showcase fitness in a real way. I just wanted to pick up on that sort of note, some of the things you said in the panel discussion just now. You said the first question that you asked in your book is, would you still work out if exercise had no impact on weight or aesthetic and what would you do? Why do you think that is such an important question? I think for so long we think that exercise is purely a tool of weight loss and only for those who are dieting and so therefore it comes with negative connotations of I think punishment. I think a lot of us do it because we don't like our bodies and we feel like we need to change it and so when we do exercise we often engage in things that we don't necessarily enjoy but can potentially feel quite punishing. I'm thinking of people, some people love burpees but for a lot of people it feels like torture, sweaty torture. And so I really want people to come at exercise from the perspective of self-care and self-respect and think about, okay, so if I'm caring for my body, I don't want to pummel it into the ground. I want to do something that feels good. So I really ask that question to get people to reflect on how they feel about exercise and, you know, what's their history with exercise and, and why do they feel that way? And then start to think about, hmm, so... If those two things are out of the equation, what might I actually enjoy doing? And I think that's the, the most important question. So one of the other things that you talked about a bit in the panel discussion was about the aesthetic of the way that exercise is sort of sold to women. And one of the things I always think about with advertising is we are, as women, sold things a lot of the time purely on the basis of being more attractive to men so we're sold things through the male gaze all the time I think why do you think it's so important to see more diversity and change that aesthetic do you think that's really putting some people off yeah I do I think 
fitness has kind of lined itself up with those beauty standards that, you know, particularly women, we feel pressure to conform to. And when you kind of, like you said, want to take fitness back on your own terms, you want to start doing it for you, not how you think you're going to be perceived to other people, but the internal motivation is purely about you and making you feel good. And if your body changes, that's a byproduct, that's and not the focus. Because I think, like you said, we often feel pressure to, you know, have a bikini body, should I say. You know, obviously all bodies are bikini bodies, but we link those things to what, why we work out. And that's the marketing language used. I mean, there was that really controversial Protein World campaign years ago about that bikini body challenge. And the backlash against that was was right I think you know I think we as women want a different narrative we want to come exercise for us not for other people and coming back to the previous point you know when we're doing it for ourselves we're going to do the things that we enjoy doing we're not punishing ourselves for other people's sake and I think that's really important what would your advice be to someone who is maybe feeling a bit bit shy about sort of putting themselves out there what should they do how should they sort of spur themselves on to do that well firstly start small if there are things you can do in the comfort of your own home that where that feels like a safe comfortable environment then I would start doing little things there I know that myself I have like body weight home workouts that people can try there are things on YouTube whether you've got yoga videos or Zumba videos or anything like that where you feel like you can start to get your confidence up with moving again and then I'd really encourage people to get involved in some sort of community where they feel like they're friendly and welcoming faces who want to help them succeed and during the panel today we're talking about netball as an example I personally am not a sporty person and so netball wouldn't be my immediate thought however talking to people who are involved in netball it seems to attract such a range of bodies such a range of backgrounds and people who really just want to have fun and play sport and I I really think that fitness and exercise should be like adult playtime and so when you can start to make it about meeting up with friends and making it social it can be really fun and enjoyable yeah I think everyone deserves to enjoy themselves you've got a book out train happy what kind of things can we expect to find in the book So the book is all about separating fitness from dieting and diet culture. And it's really about, like I said, getting fitness back on your own terms and really starting to trust your body and trust yourself with making the best choices for your body. Because I think a lot of us get so overwhelmed with the rules around fitness. You know, I need to be working out X amount of times a week doing this type of exercise and that type of exercise when really we need to start thinking about what we want to do and trust ourselves to you know tell us when we need to push ourselves but also tell us when we need to take a step back and rest which is equally important there's also a workout guide in there so hopefully I, get, I hope you read the book and then at the end you're like wow I really want to get moving and then there's a 10 week guide at the back so that if you feel you know as we said if you feel a bit like wow I don't know where to start this feels really overwhelming there's a workout guide that has body weight training and workouts with dumbbells and kettlebells so you could go to the gym and do those or do them in the comfort of your own home and in the book we have similarly to this girl can we've got different body types demonstrating all the exercises so you hopefully you look in there and you feel like you see someone who looks like you and where can we find you on instagram yeah i'm on social media at, at tally rye and yeah you can find the book as well in all good bookstores and online i'm sure and yeah you can keep up to date with what i'm doing on there and i like like i said i like to share free workouts i like to share ideas for people on there as well so hopefully there's something for you sally thanks very much thank you so much
Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster spewed forth from our screens this week? This week we went all back to the 90s to watch Dante's Peak, a film full of some really aggressive push-ups. And peanut eating. Yes. Really aggressive peanut eating. Yeah. <laughs> Jen's already confused. It's it must have been while I was making dinner whilst watching. In the it. opening, in the opening bit, he does some really aggressive push-ups. What a oh, terrible yeah. push-up! Sounds like a woman as well. Yeah. Because I was just doing a bit of vegetable cutting whilst this was yeah. happening, and also I didn't want to watch her head go again. Yeah, and I heard it, and I was a bit like, "He sounds like a lady." Like just the way he was breathing, he sounded fully like a woman. Anyway, so Dante's Peak is um, volcano, which many believed would never erupt certainly not during the celebrations in a town that is the second most desirable place to live with a population of under 20,000 in America they say that what three four times during it they're really proud of that but they they really are so they're having their celebrations and Piers Brosnan who works in volcanoes who has already once lost a very close partner to volcano eruption decides to go off and investigate some stuff that's happening in this town, which name I can't remember, but all I will tell you is it's the second most desirable place to live with a population of under 20,000. Is the town not called Dante's Peak? Yeah, it's called Dante's Peak. Is it called I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. I really like Piers Brosnan. Just just laying that on the table. I want it said before whatever Hannah's about to say. Well, he's been quite unlucky in love, and in a real trip back to the 90s, he explains to the mayor, Lind- Linda Hamilton, who is going to be his new girlfriend at and some point. And still not had her fringe cut in, in a way that doesn't mean it impedes her vision. No. And he tells her that the last person he went out with was uh, really into crystals, which must really firmly stab this film in the 90s like nothing else. What he says to her is, which I think is the best bit of dialogue in a film ever, he says, she loved volcanoes. <laughs> She loved eruptions. Anyway, there's some youngsters getting up to some hijinks in a hot spring and they end up boiling to death. Standard. Um, Yeah, which isn't isn't enough to make everyone panic because there is, cha-ching, Jen, an event that cannot possibly be cancelled. They go up to investigate with this piece of kit that looks like it's two desk chairs with the two spinny (laughs) chairs nailed together, which apparently cost a million pounds from NASA or something, and it falls down there. There's a big drama. Fucking hell, there's going to be an explosion. Volcano explodes. And that is kind of the long and short of this. Weirdly, in a film that a volcano explodes, and you would imagine, you know, or erupts would be the better word for it, you would imagine that would be mass carnage. It actually has kind of everybody, almost everybody gets out all right. Mm. Who's that thanks to? Thanks to? Well, it's thanks to whoever designed a car that could be driven over lava and its tyres wouldn't melt and it was uh, its whole chassis was on fire and then they carried on driving it for the whole rest of the film. Do you think the same person designed the car that can travel underwater? Yeah. It was very Bond, wasn't it? It was like a um, duck tours. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, those. Yeah, I've been on one of those in Boston. <laughs> yeah, and it's really, it was really hot and it, we all had like T-shirts on and then you go in the water and it suddenly becomes effing freezing. We used to, uh, I we I used to work on the, like the, my office when I worked at DEFRA was on the Thames. You'd see them quite a lot. They break down quite a lot, guys, just FYI. They're not really designed to go like fully down a fucking river. They're supposed to cross small bodies of water. 
Right. Yeah. I've, well, they're also very cold, so take a cardi. Mm. That's our tips. Or don't do it. Or don't do <laughs> it. It's going to break down. Yeah. Linda Hamilton's character has two children, and they exist largely to just drive the plot in a fashion that... Like, there's a bit where they insist on going to get their They literally drive the plot the wrong way up a mountain. Exactly. Mm. So they want to go and get their grandma, right? And then when they get their grandma, they then go off to chase a dog. And I thought eventually they're going to be chasing a butterfly, like, up the side of this volcano because they're getting further and further away. It was the most incongruous pet survives carnage ever but I was like come on they blo- that it looked like they'd lost the dog and then just just so happened on the in the the lava car yeah. they float past we've got one shot of this says Pierce as they spot the dog dog rescued go Raffi I was like pet survives yeah. carnage not so much grandma who jumped yeah, into acid sadly. and waded through it that was, and that went on for a long time didn't it just going oh I'm walking across the water she did walk through acid for ages yeah. Yeah. but you know the dog survived guys but, but she walked through acid for ages, but then died without a mark on her. She had like a oh very, no, she had like, a bit of a no, gammy, yeah, of, like, gammy legs. She had it all up her neck. Well, they said, they oh, said, the contrast was shit. Well, they said, have you looking. seen, have you, have you seen her legs or something like that? And then I don't, I don't recall actually then seeing her legs. I yeah, imagine yeah. they're a bit mashed up. She ripped up. her jeans. <laughs> but then, uh, then as she was dying, she had like burns all over her neck. Mm. She had like a crusty nose. She had all sorts of shit yeah. going on. Anyway, they then eventually managed to drive underground. And this bit of the plan, I can't help but thinking, shouldn't have worked. They shouldn't have survived that. They were chasing... Well, when they go in the mine. They basically drive into a mine. Right? Now, isn't... isn't Smoke can go underground. I guess so. I don't know. If it did go underground, there was nowhere else for it to go. So it was pretty likely... Like the lava went, oh, I can't go down there. Just sort of went past (laughs) it. Oh, that's a closed door. Yeah, I can't go in there. A closed door that small children had worked out how to open. Yeah. Which was a bit weird. It's I weird because the rest of it is so accurate. Yeah. <laughs> like the cars um, and It and did the dog. look like it was the worst plan on earth. But they mostly survived it and then probably fucked at the end. We don't know that. But Piers Brosnan looked pretty bashed up, so I'd have given him a couple of weeks. Do you think deep sea fishing was code? <laughs> <laughs> he said he was going to take a deep sea fishing. But with the kids, so that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go, Dante's Peak. A volcano explodes. Most people get away safely. The second most desirable town to live in with a population of under 20,000 in America is ruined and uh, a dog survives. And all that gets killed is his boss and her mother-in-law. And actually... Win-win. That is going to say, they would be the people (laughs) most people would pick. Present company accepted. The death of his his boss, uh, played by Charles Hallahan, it means that I score ironic death. I think it's the first time I've had an ironic death. Because he's like, oh, Pierce, you daft bastard. This isn't yeah. ever going to erupt. Stop it. We're going home. Bye. Yeah. And he just gets hit by a bridge quite dramatically. But, but silly away. as it was, I actually found it quite enjoyable because it was silly. Oh, it was Rather fun. than like Contagion, which was earnest. But <laughs> This was a romp. It wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I quite liked it. I feel like we're back on proper disaster film territory. It could have had more bees in it for me, but apart from that, (laughs) I had a lovely time. So everybody count up and then we can... Well, I have to admit my shame in that I have forgotten my bingo sheet. So that means I get penalised because there'll be some that I've missed, but I'm going to try and remember. I have seven. I think I've got seven. Okay. I think I've got five, but, you know, I'm probably losing out here because of my own idiocy, so much deserved. Okay, what five do you reckon you have, Mick? I have got Ironic Death, as previously established. Pet Survives Carnage, as previously established. Could the title be a porn film title? 
absolutely. I have got a uh, bridge collapse, and I have got, but I've got to get to my son and daughter, but you know, less important. Yeah. I think that's it. And I'm really pleased I remembered all of I would those. say, arguably, you could have Captain Goes Down with the Ship. Oh, for Ca- um, for Charles Hallahan? Yes, for for the the one, because he stays, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, they all stay, and then he does... Yeah. Do- I mean, I'm happy to take another one. Do you think I deserve it? Um, well, go on, then. Since Jen and I just said seven, I could be magnanimous <laughs> and still win, so perfect. Um, I have Old Person Sacrifice. That yep. was Jumping in the Acid. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, I mean, almost anything. Run, drive a car with no tyres on, jump uh, into the back of a moving vehicle. Um, so many traffic jams. Ironically, I can't have if only we hadn't bought substandard kit because they keep going on about how expensive it's their kit was. And, how NASA and, the, and the signal from NASA saves them all in the mm. end. My eyes, the CGI, when they're up in the old lady's cabin and the side of it falls down and all the lava runs in, it looks dreadful. I thought the effects... I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you on that, but I thought for the majority of them, given how old it is, the effects stood up pretty well. Absolutely, but I'm definitely having it for that. Not arguing with you. that clearly looked like it was happening in an entirely different universe, let alone... Because there are so many sequences as well of special effects. Snow, ash, lava, dogs. Um, Cassandra ignored... I don't know whether to take uncanny prediction of real-life disaster since volcanoes erupt all the time. That doesn't actually seem fair. Uh, local radio reports. and But where are they going to the toilet? People who lived in a mine underground for a couple of days. In the mine? Yeah. What about Piers Brosnan? He was, well, my, maybe the answer to that is in his Just own pants. pissed himself. Yeah, <laughs> to be honest. Bigger fish to fry. Okay, well then that leaves me one that's a bit iffy. So if you can prove seven really well, Jen, it's all yours. Brexit analogy. Oh, this is lovely. We're going to make loads of money. Oh, fuck, everything's awful. Yeah, that's true, because the town's just about to get a big investment. Yeah. Um, but now there's no town. We're the second most desirable country to live in <laughs> with a population of over... Oh, no. Turns you out... Meant, you meant country. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so many helicopters. There's a bunch of them at the end. Thanks, guys. Uh, event that's too important to cancel. Yeah. Yeah. Provably bad science. I think pretty much everything yeah. they say is a bit squiffy. I'm not going I'm not sure we. I can get away with weather geek... I'd say geology geek. Yeah, I don't know if it's the geology. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this disaster saved our relationship, kind of saved a few of her relationships with her son, with her mother-in-law. Sadly, she did die, yeah. but, you know, on good terms. It was but a in an old saving. lady sacrifice, so I got a point, so well done, love. I haven't actually included Can You Smell Burning, because I don't know if it counts. Sobbing Child, yes. And my new addition, only a geologist slash man of science would wear this. I'm referring to the leather bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can have candy smell burning, Jen, given that quite a lot of stuff was, was on, on fire. fire. I think that gives me eight then. Jen is the winner. Oh, fuck, I have to pick something now. And she has to celebrate by doing 20 really aggressive push-ups while eating peanuts. While while talking (laughs) about crystals. (laughs) No, we'll just lay crystals along her back. Um, Snakes on a plane. Job done. Got to get these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane with a spork. Standard issue for all women.